Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session number 15 of our discussion of the nature of Middle-earth, as tonight we return to the Asanwe Kenta, which I'm just, like, ready to continue talking about for several weeks. But we're going to continue on through. I actually expect we'll finish that this week uh, and maybe even get on to the um, fate and free will uh, uh <laughs> section. It was really funny because earlier this week, um, when was that? Yesterday. That's when that was. Yesterday. I was recording. I was doing a guest interview um, with um, this other podcast. Um, and uh, we were talking about Lewis and Tolkien and uh, uh, and uh, Christian stuff and everything. And uh, they were... Um, asking about influences, and we ended up talking about Boethius. And I was like, ooh, ooh, because I like, just read the passage, which I'm like, oh, man. Like, the greatest confirmation of, like, my Boethius reading, uh, my, my Boethian reading of The Lord of the Rings that I've ever seen, and here it is in the nature of Middle-earth. Um, anyway, really fun stuff. So we'll get there. We'll get there. Um, I, um, yeah, we'll get there. Probably. Actually, I'm not sure we'll get there tonight, but we'll get there next week, sooner or later, sooner or later. I keep reminding myself that um, I'm, I'm not in a hurry. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just not in a hurry. Um, why, why hurry? Uh, there's no, there's no, uh, there's no reason to. Um, before we get started, though, let me just do one quick announcement. Um, I just wanted to draw your attention. It's the last week of January, which means that in February, our new space modules are going to be starting up. If you haven't checked out space yet, you totally should. Uh, space Signum Portals for Adult Continuing Education um, is our new continuing education program at Signum. Um, it is a really, really fun opportunity. Uh, basically, spaces, space modules are designed to provide folks an opportunity to learn fun stuff that you've always wanted to learn in a really, like, good, supportive classroom environment so it's not just like, you know, learning on your own, because I don't know about you, but a lot of times I have set out to be like, I'm going to learn a language or I'm going to do something and I'm going to, like, plug away at it, like, you know, on my own and I'm going to, and I've very often set out to do that and not made progress. Space is designed, again, it's, it creates a, a, a really nice classroom environment with you know, professional teachers and, and awesome fellow students uh, to be able to come together and learn for fun, the stuff that you want to learn about. Um, so it's, um, uh, I, I, I've been delighted by the program, delighted to see the modules we've, we've been able to offer to talk to folks who have been uh, taking them so far. It's been a great experience uh, for all of us. Cool. Uh, Tomas had just finished today with the introduction to Tolkien's Invented Languages uh, in uh, The Lord of the Rings. Yeah, cool. Awesome. Um, awesome. So, uh, yeah, that's that was, uh, that was a really cool one. We're going to have some follow-ups to that coming soon. But anyway... Wanted to draw your attention to space because we do we do new modules every month. Uh, so we've got um, our February modules, which are starting up soon. Um, we're continuing our we've got a, a group of folks who are who are learning Old English and Latin together. So we're continuing those. Uh, we also have an advanced readings in Old English class that's running um, on uh, uh, heroic elegies. So some of the great like poems like the Wanderer and the Seafarer, and I think are both in there. Um, that's going to be happening. So if you've studied Old English before. Um, 
awesome opportunity to be able to kind of keep your hand in and not let it go away as it so easily does. Um, and then two other modules, um, our first fairy tales module, we're, we're going to be doing uh, a study of a sort of a survey uh, of fairy tales from multiple different traditions. It's going to be really cool. So uh, the fairy tale tradition, uh, really fascinating. Um, and are you talking to me, uh, Sarah Brown's module on basically connecting with Tolkien in the modern world and Tolkien, the way in which Tolkien speaks to people uh, in the modern world. It's a really, uh, really fascinating topic. So anyway, there, um, that's what's coming up in, fe in February. So there's still time if you wanted to sign up uh, for February modules. What you do is you, first you buy tokens. Basically, you can buy tokens and then you cash them in one token per monthly module. Um, and you can, your tokens never expire. So you can just buy however many tokens you want. And then you can, you can cash a token in to take a module. So you could you know, buy your tokens, cash it in for a February module. You could hang on to it and uh, take one of our March modules. We have below here our candidate module. Modules, all of the modules that we've put forward for um, uh, for people to select for March to tell us what they're interested to take, um, or you you can give them away. Uh, a lot of people have done that. You know, buy a couple tokens and you know get a couple friends and all do a, a module together. Um, really, um, uh, really fun. So anyway, I just. Um, wanted to make sure to draw your attention to this because I think that space is such a, a fun opportunity and lots of people have been having a lot of fun with it. We're going to have some, um, you know, I, I, I will be releasing the, the new modules that we're going to be offering for April pretty soon. We offer them, we, you know, put out the lists a couple months in advance. Um, little hint, there might be some new languages that we're offering then. So it's going to be, um, it's going to be pretty fun. So anyway, that is... Um, that is what I wanted to remind you of and draw your attention to uh, here. So there we go. All right. Let us return to uh, the nature of Middle-earth and see how far we get. All right. So uh, there's too much. Let me sum up. Um, we were looking at the connection from mind to mind. Now, the first principle that he was explaining, um, uh, that Tolkien was explaining about telepathic communication, right? About reading minds. Uh, so both whether you're reading something in someone's mind or whether you are uh, communicating something to them, their mind has, has to be open. That it is not possible for anybody uh, to be able to read the mind of someone whose mind is closed. The will of the person, the unwill and the will of the person, of the target, um, is really important, and the unwill is inviolate, right? So, Christopher, thank you. So, Christopher, remind me, make sure you remind me again. When I, so, we're, we're, we're going to pause. I was talking to Christopher, and I was also uh, uh, talking over email uh, with Alyssa House Thomas, both of whom were wanting to discuss passages of the Lord of the Rings. Um, thinking again, as I was doing with the Houses of Healing, and we were looking at the ways in which, um, you know, when two incarnates are trying to communicate mind to mind, right? Remember how you, you've got to strengthen there has to be some strengthening of that connection in order for that to really work effectively for uh, for two incarnates. And so we were looking at the Houses of the Healing um, as one really clear example uh, where, you know, when you kind of take the principles that he's laying out here uh, and, uh, and, you know, project that back, um, it's, uh, um, it, it works perfectly. I mean, it's just like, 
completely uh, uh, not only fits with the Lord of the Rings passage, but provides like a new uh, a new insight, a new understanding into what's going on there. Like it's really I, I love these kinds of explanations, as I said last time, that kind of retroactively transform uh, one of the passages of the Lord of the Rings. That's like the best kind of of, uh, of retcon, right? Um, so both Alyssa and Christopher wanted to talk about some uh, some other Lord of the Rings passages. And my first reaction, I was like, gosh, I'm not sure if we're going to have time to do that. That would be kind of self-indulgent. Oh, no, that's what we do here, actually. <laughs> I was realizing, like, wait a second. What about, what, why, 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 what else are we supposed to do? Like, of course we can take time to talk about that. Uh, that's the whole point, isn't it? Like, let's have fun. So anyway, so we'll do that. But what I want to do is I want to finish discussing the rest of Chapter 9. Um, the rest of the essay, and then we'll go back and we'll look at some of those examples. So, Christopher, make sure that I uh, remember again before we move on to uh, to the next chapter. Um, okay, so with that, let's get back because we had just gotten to his explanation of foresight, which is pretty cool. So, okay, he says, Things may seem alike, but if they are in kind wholly different, they must be distinguished. Foresight, which is prevision and forecasting, which is opinion, made by reasoning upon present evidence, may be identical in their prediction, but they are wholly different in mode, and they should be distinguished by lore masters, even if the daily language of both elves and men gives them the same name as departments of wisdom. Okay, so this is uh, uh, quoting from Pengaloth here, of course, because like whenever we can, we're quoting from Pengaloth. Um, uh, so, so. Now, I'm not sure. I was trying to think. I'm like, the way that he talks about when he says um, they should be distinguished by lore masters, even if the daily language of both elves and men gives them the same name as departments of wisdom, made me think there's got to be a passage of the Lord of the Rings, at least one, that he's thinking of when he says that, right? Um, Just as when we were looking before, and we'll come back to it again uh, afterwards in chapter 11 or something like that, um, uh, the question of, of, of the heart, remember, um, when he was saying that the elves don't use the word heart, uh, you know, to mean the seat of your you know, feelings or anything like that. Um, and, of course, we were all immediately saying, like, well, yeah, but what about all those passages where the elves are just saying all, like, my heart tells me that or my heart warns me, but for the warning of my heart and all that kind of thing. Um, and so we were like... Hang on a second. But, but remember, of course, obviously, Tolkien was thinking of those, too. And indeed, uh, one of the things that seems to me relatively clear is that the way that he was elaborating those things is designed to explain those passages. He was thinking of them, too. He always does this. right? I mean, I'm not saying that Tolkien is perfect in this. He can forget things. He can make mistakes. He can miss things. He can even try to slide by things. Um, but... Um, but he's very good at, I mean, he really enjoys doing this, and it's exactly up his alley as a scholar uh, to be taking, you know, remembering passages in The Lord of the Rings and not clarifying them, not fixing them, but explaining them, right? Um, devising a new system that sheds a new light on those, right? So um, I'm not sure exactly what he's referring to here but I feel like there's a there's 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 there seems to me so likely to be just the way he says that it sounds likely to me that there's a Lord of the Rings passage that underlies this a place where foresight and forecasting 
like where the same language is used for both. Um, one person who is like foresight, some kind of insight from outside him or herself has come upon him, right? And another place where a person is forming an opinion based, you know, made by reasoning upon present evidence, right? And through that sort of predicting what um, what is going to happen, right? Uh, so when, when two people are doing that, it might sound the same and people might talk about it the same way. And I'm wondering where, um, but um, anyway, maybe we'll, maybe we'll come back to that if somebody thinks of an example, but I wasn't able to think of one off the top of my head. It sounds like there should be. Anyway, but they're totally different. But now we get the meaty footnote. Let's get to the meaty footnote. Pengoav here elaborates, though it is not necessary for his argument. <laughs> Even Tolkien is like, this is slightly self-indulgent, but I'm going to go into this anyway. So again, I feel totally justified, though it is not necessary for his argument. This matter of foresight. Okay, please do elaborate the matter of foresight, Pengoav. I can't wait. No mind, he asserts, knows what is not in it. All that it has experienced is in it, though in the case of the incarnate, dependent upon the instruments of the Hroa, some things may be forgotten, not immediately available for recollection. So, okay, so you can only know, know, remember, knowledge, right? I'm not uh, judging, not uh, surmising. You can only know what is in your mind. Okay, got that. Um, and... Everything that you have experienced is in your mind, unless you're unfortunate enough to be one of the incarnates, in which case your mind is connected with your body and your body makes mistakes, right? So um, you might forget some things, right? But that means, of course, you'll note, those who do not have bodies, like the Valar, do not forget. Forgetting is a, is a Hroa issue, right? Okay, all right, so... Uh, let's go. But no part of the future is there. It's impossible to know the future because you haven't experienced the future. So this future is not in your mind. And so therefore you don't know it. No part of the future is there for the mind cannot see it or have seen it. That is a mind placed in time. Don't even get me started on that. Um, anyway, but all incarnates in the Valor and everybody, everybody who is within Arda, right, is definitely within time. Okay. Such a mind can learn of the future only from another mind which has seen it. But that means only from Eru, ultimately. Or immediately from some mind that has seen in Eru some part of his purpose, such as the Ainur, who are now the Valar in Ea. Footnote. Okay, I said don't even get me started on the time thing. Totally doing that. Um, totally going back to that. Let me not pass that over. Again, why are we here if not to talk about the things we want to talk about? <laughs> but I'll be brief. Um, sometimes, especially when I start talking about Boethius, which it doesn't take very much provocation to do that. Um, when I'm talking about Boethius, people have asked me before, is God, like, does Tolkien conceive of God as outside of time? And... I've wanted to say yes, probably. I have said probably, and I've wanted to say yes, um, just knowing that, you know, that was Boethius' teaching, very widely accepted. Tolkien probably believed that. But I didn't have any evidence, like proof exactly, from within the text. I think you could probably build it, but um, 
you know, the timeless halls, probably. Um, but it's the, all that stuff, like the Anuindale, it's hard to build like theological points on that because it's obviously a mythic telling, right? Um, I mean, how can you make music timelessly exactly, right, outside of time? So anyway, whatever. Um, the point is that passage, when he says first, a mind placed in time cannot see the future. And then says, therefore, any knowledge about the future has to come from Eru, ultimately. Um, only from Eru, ultimately. Logical conclusion. And thus I judge, based on strong evidence, that Eru, and Eru only, is outside of time and can see the future as he sees the present and the past, as Boethius described. Um, whereas none of... now And the Ainur, they... They know some of the future. Some of the future is in their minds. Mediately. Right? Mediately. Um, that is through the mediation of, of Eru. Right? Eru has shown them some of the future in the vision that they received. Right? So they know some. Some of the future is in their mind. Not because they're outside of time, but because they have been shown it by Eru. An incarnate continuing on that. An incarnate can thus only know anything of the future by instruction derived from the Valar or of the uh, yeah, from the Valar or by a revelation coming direct from Eru. But any mind, whether of the Valar or of the incarnate, may deduce by reason what will or may come to pass. This is not foresight. Not though it may be clearer in terms and indeed even more accurate than glimpses of foresight. Not even if it is formed into visions seen in dream, which is a means whereby, quote, foresight also is frequently presented to the mind. You can have a dream about the future. That doesn't actually prove that you've had for because it's remember what he said about Elvis dreams, right? How the mind can work in dreams. It's possible if you have a dream about the future that that was not a vision vouchsafed to you by Eru, but rather that was your own reasoning mind working, right, on premises and arriving at a conclusion. Um, with elves, that kind of mental working while the Hroa is at rest is normal, right? I mean, we, we learned a little bit about that um, last time. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay, let's see. Um, okay. Let's see. Alyssa, I was thinking about that, but I wasn't sure what to do with that. So Alyssa is thinking about foresight and forecasting. Um, Alyssa says, um, quoting Gimli, but Gandalf chose to come himself, and he was the first to be lost, answered Gimli about Moria, of course. His foresight failed him, says Gimli. The Council of Gandalf was not founded on knowledge, on foreknowledge of safety for himself or for others, said Aragorn. Um, so there you go. That would seem to be an example, Alyssa, of um, where Gimli is. But see, that's it's it's that's pretty close. Gimli's not exactly saying Gandalf had a moment of foresight and it was wrong, right? Um, but he's almost like assuming that, right? And uh, Aragorn is kind of saying, yeah, no, like he, he didn't go into Moria because he 
even he didn't he didn't do either one of those things, right? He neither had prevision nor did he forecast um, that it would be safest to go through Moria. Um, so Aragorn is kind of debunking the whole thing. But however, I agree that you're right that the two are using the word foresight. I think in different ways. Gimli seems to be using it in the prevision sense, right? Um, I think, and Aragorn is using the word for knowledge, I think, in the sense of forecasting, right? He, he, it's not, uh, again, he didn't lead us into Moria because he was confidently predicting that everybody, including him, would be safe, right? Um, yes, yes. Um, okay. Yes, I, I knew not then that you were a man foresighted by Amir is, um, that is clearly type A, right? That is clearly the prevision type that Amir is ascribing uh, to, uh, to Aragorn there. I think, I think that's pretty clear that that's what he's, uh, especially in the moment, you know, in the moment of you catastrophe, right? Um, yeah. Um, ooh, Mr. Dennis, that's a wonderful example. I'm trying to think that um, I'm trying to think whether or not the words or any of these words are used there. Um, but you're very right that Denethor believes that he has foreseen the downfall of Gondor, but it's only forecasting and not, it turns out, excellent forecasting, right? The mitigating point there would be that, of course, Denethor's knowledge is based not on what he believes even to be a vision of the future as much as a vision of the present upon which he, which he uses as present evidence, literally, right, to, to, to draw a conclusion. So I think that even he might think that he's forecasting um, instead of uh, foreseeing in that way. Um, yeah. Oh. Um, Christopher asks, where does Gandalf's idea that Gollum would have a part to play before the end come? Hmm. Hmm. Where does that fall? Um, doesn't he say that his heart, his heart tells him that? That's like a two birds with one stone quote, if so. Doesn't he say that? Doesn't he say my heart tells me? That Gollum will have it. Yeah, yeah. I think I, I think we're all over that passage. I think in this chapter, right, or in these last few chapters, anyway. Um, I believe, especially if we translate that phrase, "My heart tells me," right, from Gandalf in that moment, in the you know as the as ore right in the way that um, we were looking at before, not as you know, my feelings were, but like, I think it suggests that it's not reason. Um, he's not saying, you know, I've thought it through and I think, um, you know, the gambler's odds favor Gollum playing a part, uh, you know, in this before the end. Um, I think, I think it's prevision, but it's hazy prevision. Notice that final note from Pingalov there. Um, that just because you have foresight doesn't necessarily mean your foresight is clear. 
um, or that you fully understand it, right? Um, it may be very unclear. Of course, one of the most famous examples of um, one of the most famous examples of foresight, obviously, is Glorfindel's prophecy about the death of the Witch King, right? Which was a certain foresight. It was definitely a foresight, not a forecasting, and it came to pass, but it was not very clear. Um, certainly the Witch King himself might have preferred a touch more clarity on that point, right? Um, so, and Gandalf doesn't have any clear sense of what part exactly Gollum has to play um, uh, before the end. So, um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Interesting. Um, Ooh, ah, okay, okay. Um, Edith and Alyssa were coming up with another one. Interesting, yes. Um, Saruman to Frodo, but do not expect me to wish you health and long life. You will have neither, but that is not my doing. I merely foretell. Yes. Forecasting, for sure. Forecasting. Um, I think that he can perceive Frodo's wounding, right? Um, remember what even Gandalf could see way back at the beginning of many meetings when he looked at Frodo? Um, and the whole, that passage about him becoming like a, a glass, you know, that, uh, you know, a light. And I like that sort of the spiritual vision with which Gandalf looks at, at, at Frodo and, and, forecasts himself what might Frodo what might come of Frodo right what might happen to him before the end I think that Saruman can see some of that too um, so yeah I definitely when he says I foretell he's not it's not prevision he wants it to sound like it right he wants it to sound like I'm making a prophecy right you know uh, I, in a, like a spooky way but I think I think he's uh, I think he's forecasting there um yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Um, oh, more examples. Okay, I probably should not do examples all night long, but one more. Brick tales, I'll do yours. Um, uh, when Galadriel says goodbye to the company, she says, I do not foretell, for all foretelling is now vain. Forecasting, clearly, clearly. Right. What she's saying is um, it's really not like the uh, the chances of these times are such like, I mean, who knows what it's going to look like in six months. Right. I mean, everything is on the hazard right now. So any premises upon which I would be forecasting are really dubious. Right. So uh, I'm not going to even forecasting. Now I'm going to instead say an if clause, right? Um, uh, so what she gives is like a conditional forecasting, um, I think, um, when she's giving her blessing there. Um, yes, vain is in futile. Absolutely, vain is in futile, Captain Button, for sure. Yeah. Um, all foretelling is now vain. It, yeah, it's useless. It's it's, it's pointless. Um, uh, man, Bricktails, I wish I had remembered to quote that line. I didn't. But I wish I had remembered to quote that line um, when 
one of our institutional reviewers once asked for a far more detailed five-year financial projection for Signum University. Um, I do not foretell, for all foretelling is now vain, would have been the perfect answer uh, to that request. Um, but, um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, but let's foresight, forecasting. But I think that we can see, I think that what you guys have, the passages that you guys are referring to here with the foretelling and the foresight, um, with the way that that gets used in the Lord of the Rings, does seem to back up my my sense, right? The, the, the vague sense unconnected to those specific passages that I was having that when he says, um, uh, even if the daily language of both elves and men gives them the same name as departments of wisdom, that they're kind of lumped together, right? That, um, it's unclear what kind of foretelling exactly we're talking about. Is it just a prediction or is it a vision of the future? Um, uh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, um, okay, let's keep going. In like, so now we come back to the crucial question of the unwill and the immediate question that many of you were asking and was the immediate question that I had to hang on a second, uh, if the unwill of the target is absolute and insurmountable by any power, you're saying Melkor can't forcibly dominate anybody else's spirit? Really? Really? Um, so we're, we're coming back to that now. Having set up the terms and explained some things. In like manner, extortion of the secrets of a mind may seem to come from reading it by force in despite of its unwill. For the knowledge gained may at times appear to be as complete as any that could be obtained. Nonetheless, it does not come from penetration of the barrier of unwill. Okay, so there are some occasions on which the secrets of a mind are extorted from the target, right? And it might look like someone has read it by force in despite of its unwill. But that's an illusion. That's not what is actually happening. So please explain this to us, Professor. Okay. There is, I, excuse me, I mean Pengaloth. There is indeed no axon uh, that is, okay, hang on a second, if I'm remembering correctly. Axon are rules. Th those are the rules. Yes. The the axon is like the, those are like the, the, the rules that um, Eru has established. The unat is just like, the nature is just like how things work. Yeah. So the, the, the oxon is the law and the unat is just the nature of the thing. Right. Um, there is indeed no oxon, no law that the barrier should not be forced for it is unat a thing impossible to be or to be done. It just like, he doesn't have to forbid it. Right. Um, uh, it, it's just like, you can't do it. Right. So uh, no need to no need to 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 forbid it. And the greater the force exerted, the greater the resistance of the unwill. But it is an oxon universal that none shall directly by force or indirectly by fraud take from another what he has a right to hold and keep as his own. So there's no need for a law to say don't force the unwill of somebody else because 
law or no law, you can't do it. It's just not possible, right? But nevertheless, it's still a universal axon that you shouldn't try, right? Um, that if in any circumstance, directly by force or indirectly by fraud, you're trying to take from another what he has a right to hold and keep as his own, that's wrong no matter what the context, no matter what the thing is in that question, right? Um, but when we're talking about what is in someone's mind and um, uh, w- w- when we're talking about uh, what's in someone's mind um, and, uh, you know, blocked by their unwill, it's kind of a, like, re- redundant or unnecessary axon in that sense. Um, but it still tells you, like, you still shouldn't try, right? Melkor repudiated all axani, right? Whatever. Laws don't apply to Melkor, right? He's the maker of his own laws. He would also abolish for himself all Unati, if he could. Indeed, in his beginning and the days of his great might, the most ruinous of his violences came from his endeavor so to order Ea that there were no limits or obstacles to his will. This is where he really screwed things up. Because he was trying to, having repudiated all Aksani, having repudiated, repudiated all laws, he was trying to break all the Unati, right? Let's make some adjustments so that everything in Amon, or sorry, not just in Amon, everything in Arda, right, happens exactly like I want it to happen. That was his goal. Okay, but this he could not do. The Unati remained a perpetual reminder of the existence of Eru and his invincibility, a reminder also of the coexistence with himself of other beings, equal in descent if not in power, impregnable by force. From this proceeds his unceasing and unappeasable rage. The natural law which says... So notice how he is like doubling and tripling down on this idea, right? This fact that the resistance of the unwill cannot be overcome by force. He's not just saying, like, you know, strange but true facts, right? It's it's not not trivia. This is not trivia. This is a huge deal. This is, in fact, central to the entire struggle between good and evil in the world, right? Um, It's bad enough that Unati remained. It's bad enough that the basic rules of nature can't, that he can't reorder them. Uh, Like, he tries and fails to reorder all the laws of nature to obey his every whim. Um, It would be bad. The the fact that that happens is a constant reminder of Eru's existence and his invincibility, right? That creation is obeying laws manifestly not set down by Melkor. That's a tough pill for him to swallow. But this law, this uh, this this unat in particular, right? That um, no uh, force can overcome the resistance of the unwill. Not only reminds him of the existence of Eru, but also reminds him that there are other creatures who are coexistent with him, equal in descent, if not power. Um, even the lowliest of the. Um, even the lowliest of the the incarnates, right? Um, you know, even like, you know, whatever, like human children or whatever, um, he can't force. 
he can't force. They are inviolate. They can be inviolate. Um, uh, impregnable. Not subject to his force. Uh, it's like the creation by Eru recapitulated in every individual soul. As if in mockery of Melkor. At least I'm sure that's how he feels about it. right? And this from this proceeds his unceasing and unappeasable rage. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Let's keep going. Therefore, he sought means to circumvent the Unat and the Unwill. Melkor devises a workaround. And what is the instrument of Melkor that he uses as a workaround? What is the what is the most deadly weapon in the hands of the enemy? Language. This weapon he found in language. For we speak now of the incarnate, the Eruhini, whom he most desired to subjugate in Eru's despite. Their bodies being of Ea are subject to force, and their spirits, being united to their bodies in love and solicitude, are subject to fear on their behalf. That is, their remember, so their spirits are subject to fear on behalf of their bodies, the Eruhini. And their language, though it comes from the spirit or mind, operates through and with the body. It is not the Sama, the mind, nor its Sanwe, its thought. Right? So, Language is not. Remember, we talked about this last time, right? This is why it was important to establish all those uh, uh, all those terms, right? Last time, the thought and the language are not the same thing. Language is the is the is the means by which you translate, right? You embody your thought into language, and embody is important, right? Because it's about being incarnate. The uh, the unincarnate don't need this. Right? The Valar don't need language, as we talked about last time. But um, language, it is not the Sama nor its Sanwe, but it may express the Sanwe in its mode and according to its capacity. So if your language is a good language and an effective language, you might do pretty well. You might be able to get a fair, reasonable embodiment um, of your Sanwe into language. Um, upon the body and upon the indweller, Therefore, that is the Thea, right, the spirit, such pressure and such fear may be exerted that the incarnate person may be forced to speak. So this is the um this is the loophole. This is the loophole that Melkor overcomes or uses to overcome this issue. He cannot force the unwill of a mind, of a spirit. But he can do stuff to the body, right? One of the things that he's clearly pointing to, I think, in this paragraph, though he doesn't say it explicitly, is torture, right? By pain, or the fear of pain. Um, that's why he's talking about the solicitude of the spirit for the body, um, and the fear on behalf of the bodies that the spirit is subject to, right? Um, by using pain and the fear of pain in the body as a lever, 
he can break their unwill, get them to relinquish their unwill, right? Or get them to reveal in language their thought. So you notice the gap there? Your mind can be closed. You can exert all the unwill that you want, but still talk, right? I might not be able to make you give up your mind to me, but I can make you talk, says Melkor, right? Um, and you might still have, your unwill might remain intact, and yet you can communicate your thought. And in some cases, you might be able to be compelled physically compelled. You might be able to be um, coerced, at least, um, into choosing to speak. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Um, yes, and so Christopher, that's there. I think there are two ways to to see it. He can't force the unwill, but he can, by fear, cause them to change their will. Yes, but again, I think there's also. I do think it's possible for their unwill to remain intact and yet for them to speak. Let's keep going. There's more. So Melkor thought in the darkness of his in the darkness of his forethought long ere we awoke. Remember, it's still Pengawalt speaking, right? For in old, for in days of old. When the Valar instructed the Eldar, new come to Amon, concerning the beginning of things and the enmity of Melkor, Manwe himself said to those who would listen, Of the children of Eru, Melkor knew less than his peers, giving less heed to what he might have learned as we did in the vision of their coming. Yet as we now fear, since we know you in your true being, to everything that might aid his designs for mastery, his mind was keen to attend and his purpose leaped forward swifter than ours, being bound by no axon. From the first he was greatly interested in language, that talent that the Eruhini would have by nature. But we did not at once perceive the malice in this interest, for many of us shared it, and Aule above all. But in time we discovered that he had made a language for those who served him, and he has learned our tongue with ease. He has great skill in this matter, Beyond doubt, he will master all tongues, even the fair speech of the Eldar. Therefore, if ever you should speak with him, beware. Alas, says Pengalon, in Valinor, Melkor used the Quenya with such mastery that all the Eldar were amazed, for his use could not be bettered, scarce equaled even, by the poets and the lore masters. Melkor's Quenya. Melkor spoke the best and most beautiful Quenya anyone ever spoke. Um, I don't know about you, but that all by itself, I find a tremendous enrichment in my imaginative picture of that time of the unrest of the Noldor. Um, okay, let's unpack this a little bit. Okay, um... How does Manwe explain this? Of the children of Eru, Melkor knew less than his peers. So the Valar knew more about the children than Melkor did. He can't be bothered. He doesn't actually care about them. Why? He's only interested in them as pawns in the his own 
one-sided game of mastery with Eru, right? Um, he wants to dominate them. He wants especially to dominate them um, because that would really stick it to Eru, right? That would, um, that would, that would be what winning would look like, right? Uh, so um, for the sake of sticking it to Eru, he really wants to dominate the children of Eru. So he's interested to learn that they exist, right? Uh, but he doesn't learn much about them. Right, like, what are they going to be like? What you know? How are they? Um, who cares? He doesn't care. Right? He just wants to dominate them. But what he does, so therefore, what he does care about, it's not that he's wholly uninterested. It's not that he ignores the coming of the children of Pharaoh. They're important to him, in the abstract. Right? He can't be bothered. But in the abstract, they're important to him, in as much as they are going to be game pieces, for him. You know, really important counters. Uh, in his uh, in his competition against Eru, um, or desire to take vengeance against Eru, whatever however we want to say it, um, and everything that might aid his designs for mastery, to everything that might aid his designs for mastery, his mind was keen to attend. So, he didn't know much about the children, but he picked up on the language thing right away. He was way quicker to perceive, quicker than the Valar were. What the incarn what it would mean for them to be incarnates. The principle that Pengawath just explained, how the connection between Thea and Roa, between spirit and body, how that connection could be exploited as a way to uh, pry open, right, to or even get around the unwill uh, of the incarnates. <clears throat> that he figured out. He figured out pretty quickly. Um, they noticed that he was really interested in language. The Valar noticed that Melkor was really interested in language. But they didn't think of it. Uh, they didn't think anything of it, right? Um, because many of them were interested in in language, especially Aule. Aule was the most interested in language of all of them, right? So, uh, if anything, it seemed like a comparatively innocent interest on his part. They did not see how that could be exploited in the way that Melkor went on to do, because their minds were bound by the Axani. Right by the laws, um, they were not. If you don't apply yourself, if your mind is bound by the laws, if you are content to live within the law, you are going to be less quick to find a workaround, to find an exploit, right? To find um, a way to job the system, because you're just not thinking that way. You're just not asking that question, um, and they weren't asking that question, so they didn't see it. They didn't see it coming. Um, Ilana, what a fascinating question. Um, do I think these long quotes from Pengaloth are evidence of how Tolkien might have written the Silmarillion for publication, mediated through Pengaloth? Um, I think there is some evidence of that. Um, I'm thinking, Ilana, especially of his revisions of the Aino in the early part of this period as well, where there's a clear 
elvish narrator, right? Um, who probably Pengo off. Um, yeah, I think, um, not to mention, Iwana, the fact that, um, uh, the fact that some of, the fact that he never actually throws away an idea and that I think that we could say we talked about this a bit in the Morgoth's Ring discussion um, that you can still see Lurk like he's not totally given up on the Book of Lost Tales right on the concept of uh, elvish lore which is being specifically handed down to humans um, and through the humans brought into circulation right um you can still see that concept is still floating around, not in the old form of the Book of Lost Tales with, you know, Ariel going to the Cottage of Lost Play and all that kind of thing. Um, but, um, uh, but yeah, I, I do... Exactly, these are contemporaneous with the Morgoth Ring stuff. Yeah, I think we can see in this period he seems to be playing with that, and I would not be a bit surprised. Um, okay. <laughs> Sorry, let me qualify that sentence. I would not have been... Had Tolkien gone on to complete the Silmarillion for publication, and had he, in doing so, used Pengaloth as the primary um, uh, uh, sort of storyteller figure, um, transmitter of the lore of old to a human recipient, um, and then possibly a Hobbit translator... I would not have been in the least surprised. Like, that seems to me a very likely way. Do I think we have enough evidence to prove that, like, that was definitely the form that he had in mind? No, I don't think we have. Um, but I think we could surmise. I'm willing to go as far as surmise on that one, Ilana. I think that seems fair. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Christopher Bartlett says, leave it to a philologist to decide that you could subvert God's will with language. Um I don't know. Yeah, I, Christopher, I don't know whether to be surprised or um, unsurprised, <laughs> basically, which is not usually like normally you know whether you're one way or the other. My first reaction was surprise um, when I got to this passage and, you know, Pengaloth is all like, and the greatest weapon of evil in the hands of the Dark One is language. And I'm like, whoa, quoth the philologist. Like, holy cow. But of course, Christopher, the more I reflected on it, I was like, okay, actually, yeah, naturally, right? Um, the, um, I mean, it's, it's almost like language is the primary art, right? Um, because language is so powerful, yeah, naturally. I mean... When you put something as incredible and powerful as language into the hands of someone who knows no Oksani, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, what more powerful weapon for good or evil could there be in the world than language? And when you start putting it in those terms, like, okay, yeah, that does kind of sound like a philologist talking now, doesn't it? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, so Melkor specializes in language and has the best Quenya ever of anybody. Let's keep going. By this means, he has destroyed many. He has caused treacheries untold, and he has gained knowledge of secrets to his great advantage and the undoing of his enemies. 
but this is not by entering the mind, or by reading it as it is, in its despite. Nay, for great though the knowledge that he gained, behind the words, even of those in fear and torment, there it is, finally, reference explicitly to torture, dwells ever the Sama inviolable. The words are not in it, though they may proceed from it, as cries from behind a locked door. They must be judged and assessed for what truth may be in them. Therefore, the liar says that all words are lies. All things that he hears are threaded through with deceit, with evasions, hidden meanings, and hate. In this vast network, he himself enmeshed he himself enmeshed struggles and rages, gnawed by suspicion, doubt, and fear. Not so would it have been if he could have broken the barrier and seen the heart as it is in its truth unveiled. So, the good news for Melkor is that language can be exploited to get information from people even though their minds cannot be forced. He cannot gain access to their minds. This is where, Christopher, I was saying that I think we can see clearly he is suggesting that it is possible for the mind, the unwill to remain unbroken, right? Your mind can remain in a state of unwill and yet your mouth speak, right? Um, you can say things in language. The fact that you, you know, when you come to the point, if you get broken by torture, right, or fear, if you come to the point where you're saying, fine, I'll tell you everything, that doesn't mean that the unwill of your mind is removed. It doesn't mean that. It just means you're going to go, there's like the one option on the one end of the spectrum where you can, where the questioner can know nothing, right? You say nothing, he can't enter your mind. There's on the other end where you release the unwill, you show a willingness to allow him to see and he gains full access to your mind. And then there's that state in the middle where your unwill is still set. He cannot learn everything that he wants to learn by entering into and seeing into your mind. But he can get words from you. He can either trick words from you or he can um, get you to talk and learn things from your conversation through manipulation um, uh, or, again, or, 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 or deception. He can torment you through, uh, you know, he can, he can torture you through torment or fear uh, to reveal things. But it's just words. The only thing you can review are words. That's the problem with language, is at the end of the day, it's just words. It's just words. It's not thought. And all thought is only imperfectly embodied. So language is this incredibly potent weapon in the hand of Melkor, but at the end of the day, it is also... Um, uh, it is also very... In the best possible circumstances... If you had somebody who was trying to cooperate, I mean, how many, uh, we've all been in this situation, right? Um, as Pengalath explains, if somebody is attempting to share something with you and explain something to you, you still might not get it. You still might not see. You, you might misunderstand, right? Um, it's just, it's not possible perfectly to embody thought into language at all, no matter how good you are at it. And needless to say, under circumstances of, say, fear and torment, the embodiment of the thought into language might possibly be imperfect as well, right? Not to mention the fact, if the unwill remains in the mind of the speaker, 
they might still be trying to conceal things from you. They might still be trying to, they might be telling you half truths. Um, uh, they might be lying to you. They might themselves be deceived in some way, right? You just don't know. Um, yes, yes. Um, yeah, um, But in this way, Christopher, this is how a bodily phenomenon is not itself. God's will is not subverted or thwarted. Um, at the end of the day, even Melkor himself remains frustrated. His ends in relation to the incarnates <clears throat> are still thwarted. Even if he can succeed so far as, oh, I don't know, creating a state of original sin in humans. Um, like that seems a pretty big win on his part, right? I mean, you'd think he would, he would score that pretty high on his scorecard. Um, yet even that, not only is it not sufficient, not only does it not undo the barriers which God has erected, in some ways it makes them worse. It backfires onto him. He, in order to manipulate language, in order to use language as his weapon in his attempt to subvert the will of God, he invents lies and he threads his own communications to creatures, to, you know, to the Eruhini through with deceit, evasions, hidden meanings, and hate. But they do it too. In this vast network, he himself enmeshed struggles and rages, gnawed by suspicion, doubt, and fear. He can't tell what's truth and what are lies. And so his desire to know and his desire to dominate are still thwarted. At the end of the day, he still can't get access to their minds. He still can't know. Um, and so... He's still in the same frustrated situation um, that he was before. Um, so yes, Brian, I agree that there could certainly have been humans and other creatures that served Melkor willingly and opened their minds to him. Yeah, yeah. This is not to say that like he's never gotten access to the mind of a single incarnate creature, right? Um, presumably he has. Presumably there, there, there are some that have given themselves to him completely. But come to think of it, this introduces a really fruitful way to talk about some of the different kind of stages of evil, right? Um, uh, different kind of... Like it, this gives us a few more milestones um, on that, you know, path down to, um, you know, to the abyss that Melkor walks in, which Saruman follows him on, and many other as well, many others as well. Um... Yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, what about Mygwen? Mygwen agreeing to help Morgoth. Um, does Mygwen surrender his unwill? Or does he just tell him? I'm not sure. I doubt it. Personally, I, I doubt that Mygwen surrendered his unwill to Morgoth. I think he told him. Obviously, he told him. 
He, it doesn't make him not a traitor, right? Um, but I don't think he surrendered his unwill. Um, I don't think he opened his mind fully to Melkor. Um, Ilana, exactly. I was just thinking of that too. Remember those passages where Tolkien was saying no elf has ever served Melkor in his heart. Remember that? And remember that we were kind of skeptical at the time? We were like, really? None? Ever? Ever? Uh, um, this, again, this gives us some new categories to think and talk about that. And when I think about it through, you know, through the matrix of this vocabulary, of this schema, yeah, I could see that. I could see that. Um, and I think it's, it is a kind of loophole, David, but I think it's more than a loophole. Um, I think it's more than a loophole. I think it, it's, it, it's really, it's kind of him putting his finger on what he meant there, you know. Um, per, perhaps, I mean, he doesn't say that explicitly, but I think it could be that. Um, yeah. Who has? Who has surrendered their unwill? Notice, um, Gollum hasn't. Right? Not for him! Um, he says, shaking his bony fist towards Mordor. Right? Um, the mouth of Sauron would be a, um, would be a, a high candidate on my part. Yeah, yeah. I'd nominate the mouth of Sauron as in the surrender to the unwill camp. Um, notice again, I consider all of this in the that beautiful category of retcon, which sheds new light. Uh, like, when you project it backwards over the text of the Lord of the Rings, it does new and awesome things, right? Um, think f how Sauron... Uh, and this is not in the Lord of the Rings proper. This is on Tolkien's other reflections on the Lord of the Rings after the fact, some of the Morgoth's Ring stuff. Um, when Tolkien talked about how Sauron used religion, like set up a cult of worship of himself, that's how he was working, one of the ways in which, one of the primary ways in which he was working to corrupt the, the Southrons and Easterlings, right? Um, in preparation for the War of the Ring. You can see why, right? Um, what was he attempting to accomplish? He wants them to surrender their unwill voluntarily to him in worship as a god, right? Um, yeah. Uh, Bjarna Soner, I was wondering about the non-school, um, do they have enough will left to surrender? Yeah, they're tricky. Um, they're tricky because of the, I don't know how the rings of power factor into that. Um, that would be hard, a little harder to say, I think. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yep. Yep. Uh, and Cecilia, I agree that Maeglin was too proud and self-serving to surrender. Yeah, I agree. I agree. 
it's not a great look, right? I mean, it's not like, oh, that just shows that he was still, you know, good at heart. No, it shows that he was evil at heart. And like, and that kind of preserved him from that particular manifestation of it, right? So, uh, yeah, no, it's not a good look. But, um, but yeah, I do, Brian, I do wonder, like, was it like a prereq for the humans of getting the ring of power? Does the ring of power, is, what if the rings of power are Sauron's attempt to get around this problem? What if Sauron is there brainstorming and he's like, okay, language thing, you know, still useful, right? But I have a better plan. I have a better plan. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. Sorry. I'm not going to think about this all night. But that would kind of track, wouldn't it? If what he wanted with Caleb Brimbor, with the leaders of the other elves, was a workaround against their unwill. He would be using the elvish rings of power immediately. Yes. It was my goal to use that in conversation, not reading the text tonight. He would use them immediately, right? Um, If the elves take willingly take up the rings of power and sort of open themselves to the rings and he uses his ring to dominate their rings, then by transitive property, he gets access to their unwill. Is that the idea? Yeah, the Trojan horse component. Exactly. Exactly. Um, Yeah. Yeah. That would work. I mean, I'm not saying it would work. I'm not recommending it. But do, do, do not attempt, right? Um, but, no, I mean, that would work as a reading of the Rings of Power. Um, a very retroactive reading, of course, but um, yeah. Well, it could work for the Nazgul too, though. Um, potentially. Potentially. I mean, they have no will left at all. Their wills become wholly subjugated to his. Their wills and yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Brian, that's exactly why I was thinking about it. That, um, yes, that's because it, it is their minds would be open to him. Um, unfortunately, it was already open to him. So, like, the, the openness kind of went both ways, right? Which is why Celebrimbor was aware of him, right? When he forged the Master Ring and they took off their rings um, so as to shut the door. Um, so it, it's exactly, it does seem to track. It does seem to track really well. Um, and yes, Ilana, especially if the elves making the rings themselves put their own will into their own rings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, that sure would make it especially true. Um, yeah. Fascinating. That's, that works. That might be my new favorite explanation going to be hard to explain all this on, uh, over Twitter, though, the next time somebody asks. 
I'm not sure I'm going to be able to come up with a 280 character version of this explanation, but uh, we'll see. Um, okay. Did Denethor in any way surrender his will to Sauron at the end after looking into the Palantir and giving in to despair? Brian, no, I don't think so. I don't think that Denethor surrendered his unwill. Um, I think his fall into madness is a consequence of his um, pride, his arrogant confidence in his own forecasting based on the data that he had received, accurate data, presumably, through the Palantir. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, will Amazon do this? Oh, man. Elana, I'd have to say no, because they had certainly written the script before the nature of Middle Earth came out. But um Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um anyway, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Stephen Osnow, this is our next myth moot reenactment. Uh what trying to circumvent the will of God and break the unwill of others experimentally. <laughs> No, let's not reenact that. <laughs> Definitely not. That might be... I think that's the second um, worst suggestion uh, for um, for a reenactment that we've had. It's going to be hard to unseat the worst suggestion ever for a reenactment uh, at Mythmoot, which was reenacting the fall of Lucifer. That was the worst. Um, uh, to see how the fall of Lucifer reshaped the geography of the world, according to Dante, uh, at the end of Inferno. Um, that's definitely, that's definitely worse. But anyway, um, okay, uh, let's keep going. I am so glad, I was, I could not even tell you how happy I was when I saw that Pengaloth addressed this question explicitly about Menwe's folly. How otherwise would you have it? Oop, hang on. How otherwise would you have it? Should Menwe and the Valar meet secrecy with subterfuge? Treachery with falsehood? Lies with more lies? If Melkor would usurp their rights, should they deny his? Can hate overcome hate? Nay, Menwe was wiser. Being ever open to Eru, he did his will, which is more than wisdom. He was ever open because he had nothing to conceal, no thought that it was harmful for any to know if they could comprehend it. Indeed, Melkor knew his will without questioning it. He knew that Manwe was bound by the commands and injunctions of Eru and would do this or abstain from that in accordance with them always, even knowing that Melkor would break them as it suited his purpose. Thus the merciless will ever count on mercy, and the liars make use of truth. For if mercy and truth are withheld from the cruel and the lying, they have ceased to be honored. That is, mercy and truth have ceased to be honored. Manwe could not by duress attempt to compel Melkor to reveal his thoughts and purposes, or, if he used words, to speak the truth. If he spoke and said, this is true, Melkor that is, he must be believed until proved false. If he said, this I will do as you bid, he must be allowed the opportunity to fulfill his promise. I'm just going to go on and keep reading. 
the force and restraint that were used upon Melkor by the united power of all the Valar were not used to extort confession, which was needless, nor to compel him to reveal his thought, which was unlawful, even if not, in, even if not vain. He was made captive as a punishment for his evil deeds under the authority of the king. So we may say, but it were better said that he was deprived for a term fixed by promise of his power to act so that he might halt and consider himself and have thus the only chance that mercy could contrive of repentance and amendment. For the healing of Arda indeed, but for his own healing also. Melkor had the right to exist and the right to act and use his powers. Manwe had the authority to rule and to order the world so far as he could for the well-being of the Eruhini, but if Melkor would repent and return to the allegiance of Eru, he must be given his freedom again. He could not be enslaved or denied his part. The office of the Elder King was to retain all his subjects in the allegiance of Eru, or to bring them back to it, and in that allegiance to leave them free. Therefore, not until the last, and not then except by the express command of Eru and by his power, was Melkor thrown utterly down and deprived forever of all power to do or to undo. Oh, man. Oh, man. Oh, wait. There's more. Who then can say with assurance that if Melkor had been held in bond, less evil would have followed? Even in his diminishment, the power of Melkor is beyond our calculation. Yet some ruinous outburst of his despair is not the worst that might have befallen. The release was according to the promise of Manwe. If Manwe had broken this promise for his own purposes, even though still intending good, he would have taken a step upon the paths of Melkor. That is a perilous step. In that hour and act, he would have ceased to be the vicegerent of the one, becoming but a king who takes advantage over a rival whom he has conquered by force. Would we then have the sorrows that indeed befell? Or would we have the elder king lose his honor, and so pass, maybe, to a world rent between two proud lords striving for the throne? Of this we may be sure. We children of small strength, any one of the Valar might have taken the paths of Melkor and become like him. One was enough. Oh, man. This, um... Yes, Stephen, throughout... Again, it's just... Um, it, I just... This passage is not only a really awesome explanation of that moment in the Silmarillion when Manway looks like he's being played for a sucker. Right? Looks like he's doing this foolish thing. Um, I mean, like, he had to know. He had to know, right? Even Tolkas knew, for crying out loud. Um, not only is he explaining that, um, Stephen, it's also like this entire passage serves as, like, a gloss on the Lord of the Rings as well, right? Stephen is saying it sounds very much like the argument against using the ring against Sauron. Yes, it does. And of course, I've um, uh, the quotation I've used for my subtitle here: "Across a dead land filled with rottenness." Right? Um, yeah, you remember Frodo's words to Faramir um, about what might happen if he brings the ring back to Minas Tirith. Right? No, um, Faramir would not have would not have it so. Right? Would not have two 
towers of Morgul, grinning at each other across a dead land filled with rottenness. That's what all of Arda could have become had Manway taken the Melkor road. So you'll notice what the two things that are being uh, sort of weighed against each other. Folly was the word that was used to characterize what Manway did. It looks like folly. It's not shrewd, right? Like, come on, you, you, you got to be a little more cunning than that, right? Uh, Manway's plan is obviously a bad plan, a pitifully bad plan. Again, even Tolkas can see through it, the issue here, right? How can we believe that Manway is a wise king if he is going to act like a dupe like that? You're going to be so easily duped. Um, and the answer is wisdom that is the calculation of what seems the most effective course to take is not always the best road to take. Stephen starts to sound like the gloss of a different element of the Lord of the Rings, doesn't it? Right? The decision to, not only the decision not to use the ring against Sauron, but all of the, uh, you know, let folly be our cloak stuff that Gandalf says, right? Um, Denethor's objection against, you know, but to do what you have done, you know, send it into the, you know, in the hands, in, you know, in the hands of a, wit a witless halfling, right? Denethor thinks very little of Gandalf's wisdom in doing what he has done, right? Um, Denethor almost says literally anything else would have been wiser than that, more shrewd than that, more likely, um, based upon, you know, your own forecasting to come to a good outcome. Any idiot should have been able to foretell, to forecast, I should specify, that evil was going to come of letting Melkor go at the end of his ages of imprisonment, right? I mean, seriously, that was not hard math to do. But when, when do you know that taking the wise path is wrong? When do you know that wisdom is wrong? When it's opposed to obedience. Um, when it's opposed to obedience. I'm going to read it again. All three of those slides. Um, I <laughs> was not going to leave any of this out, um, and I'll do. We'll do. I'll do a little bit more, kind of highlighting some things I, again as I go through it again. How otherwise would you have it? What would you have wanted Manway to do? Think it through. Should Manway and the Valar meet secrecy with subterfuge, treachery with falsehood, lies with more lies? If Melkor would usurp their rights, that's what he was trying to do. Should they deny his? Would that have been the right thing to do? Can hate overcome hate? Nay, Manway was wiser. Or being ever open to Eru, he did his will, which is more than wisdom. Right? Um, at the end of the day, it was not about wisdom versus folly. It was about obedience. It was about knowing when... Um, your own wisdom is too limited to see what the outcomes were. And again, Denethor is a good example, right? Um, his wisdom, his forecasting, right? Again, wisdom in this sense, this sense of like, 
you know, my own experience combined with my ability to reason tells me that this is the best possible, the wisest course to take, right? Um, even Frodo's wisdom surpasses Denethor's at this point because Denethor's own wisdom is blinded by his pride um, and his fear. Um, so his wisdom is not as great as he thinks he is. This is why you choose obedience over wisdom. Because if the choice is, I'm either going to do what seems right to me based on the information I have, or I'm going to do what the person who knows literally everything told me I should do, maybe the latter course is actually wiser, right? Um, being ever open to Eru, he did Eru's will, which is more than wisdom. He was ever open because he had nothing to conceal. No thought that it was harmful for any to know if they could comprehend it. Manway does not have his unwill set against Melkor. Melkor could read Manway's mind any day he wanted to. Manway was open. He's open to everybody. I'm pretty sure that's what Pengoath is suggesting there. He's open to everybody. He's got nothing to conceal. No thought that it was harmful for any to know. Manway keeps no secrets. Manway keeps no secrets, has nothing he's ashamed of. His mind is open to everybody. If they could comprehend it. Not everybody can, right? Um, so won't do everybody, you know, all good, right? But they could see it. Melkor's unwill, obviously, is set against everybody, right? He's not letting anybody read his mind. Um, but Manway lets anybody read his mind. Okay. Um, indeed, Melkor knew his will without questioning it. Again, Mel Melkor knew exactly what Manway was thinking, right? How easy is it to manipulate Manway, right, for Melkor? Manway's literally an open book, right? He's got all of his cards on the table. Melkor knew his will, and he knew that Manway was bound by the commands and injunctions of Eru, and would do this or abstain from that in accordance with them, always, even knowing that Melkor would break them as it suited his purpose. Melkor knows, right? Melkor's standing there saying in his trial, right, Oh, I repent. I repent. Um, and you should let me go free. And Manway is going to do it. Even though Manway is pretty sure Melkor is lying. And Melkor knows that Manway is sure that he is lying. He knows all, he's, all he has to do is say this. And he'll get let free. He knows that. Because he knows their restraints under which they're operating. They're going to obey these Aksani, right? These laws, which say, like, don't restrain the free will of any of Eru's creatures and other stupid stuff like that, right? Um, so they're not going to restrain his free will, right? Okay, cool. Um, Thus the merciless will ever count on mercy, and the liars make use of truth. So... Doesn't that mean that people who are honest and people who are merciful are always going to get taken advantage of by the unscrupulous? Yup. For if mercy and truth are withheld from the cruel and the lying, they have ceased to be honored. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
if telling somebody the truth, if you know that telling them the truth is going to, if they're going to exploit that, right, and use it against you, should you not tell it? Bengaloth says, then you also are now a liar, right? Um, truth ceases to be honored. If you think you could... Notice how deep. This is the bedrock of, again, as a gloss on the Lord of the Rings. Throughout the Lord of the Rings, we see again and again means versus ends, right? Saruman and other... Saruman, Denethor, other people who are falling. Boromir, right? Putting the means over the ends. Right? The, the, the ends are good. The ends are good, right? We have good goals. And But, you know, if we have to use, you know, regrettable means to achieve those ends, it's okay. Because the ends are good, right? And that's what really matters. And the Lord of the Rings seems to suggest again and again that does not work. That never works. This is like the bedrock principle underlying that, right? This is, uh, this is like the, th the, 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 the sort of moral and theological foundational premise of the entire means versus ends morality that we see in The Lord of the Rings, right? Manway could not, by duress, attempt to compel Melkor to reveal his thought and purposes, or if he used words, to speak the truth. Um, that, it, that's not open. To Manway, he, he would be and he'd become just like Melkor. If he spoke and said, if Melkor spoke and said this is true, he must be believed. Notice, not just tolerated, believed until proved false. If he said this, I will do as you bid, he must be allowed the opportunity to fulfill his promise. You can't say to Melkor in his trial, I don't believe you. I don't believe you. You say that you repent. You say that you repent and that you want to make amends. I don't believe you. Back to prison with you until you convince me that you're telling the truth. He can't do that. He must be allowed the opportunity to fulfill his promise. He might not. You might be pretty confident that he's not going to. Your forecasting might tell you. Odds of this dude fulfilling this promise? Really low. But... Um, he must be allowed the opportunity to fulfill his promise. Why? The force and restraint that were used upon Melkor by the united power of all the Valar were not used to extort confession, which was needless, nor to compel him to reveal his thought, which was unlawful, even if not vain. He was made captive as a punishment for his evil deeds under the authority of the king. Um, force and restraint. Again, like, you don't send him back to prison, right? Um to try to extort confession or compel him to reveal his thought. Do you really mean it? Are you really repenting here? Right? Is this sincere or are you just manipulating us? I'm not sure. We're going to throw you back in the clink for three more ages, right? And then see what song you sing after that, right? Um, no. To do so would be to restrain his free will in an effort to either extort confession or compel him to reveal his thought. You can't do that. That is unlawful, even if not vain, right? Um, 
Um, Ace99, didn't Varda know his thoughts and wouldn't Manway have asked her about them? He would have, but she didn't. She can't read his mind. The unwill is inviolate, impregnable. She can't read. She could forecast it. She knows him pretty well, right? Um, she can uh, surmise, even judge, what his thoughts are. But she can't read them um, because his unwill is definitely set against her. Um, he was made captive as a punishment for his evil deeds. It was just. Imprisoning him was just. It was a just punishment for the deeds he had in fact committed, right? Under the authority of the king, who is open to the will of Eru and the, the, the instructions of Eru. So we may say, but it were better said that he was deprived for a turn. So again, like, we might say he was made captive as a punishment for his evil deeds. Pretty much true. But then he goes on to say, wait, but no, no, there's a better way to think about it, about what happened, about his imprisonment. It were better said that he was deprived for a term by fixed, fixed by promise, a term fixed by promise of his power to act so that he might halt and consider himself and have thus the only chance that mercy could contrive of repentance and amendment. There is only one act of mercy that could possibly be shown to Melkor. There's only one good thing you can do to him. You can't force him to be good. You can't force him to mean to be good. You can't even force, force him to tell you whether or not he really means to be good, right? But there's only one good thing you can do to Melkor, and that is deprive him, for a fi deprive him of his power to act so that he might have a legit chance to contrive of repentance and amendment. Maybe if you give him some time to think, make him stop act, force him to stop acting, right? Force him to stop doing evil. Make him sit in the corner and think about this for a few ages, right? There is a chance that from that could come real repentance and amendment. There's nothing else you can do for him, right? Now, even that has to be only for a fixed term fixed by promise, right? If you promise him and keep the promise that it's only going to be for a short time. But if the three ages don't do it, is the fourth age going to do the trick? How about seven? How about 15, right? Um, yeah. Uh, now, again, so that's, the, there's, again, there's no point. They can't send him back to the clink. Well, again, there's literally no, nothing else they can do at his trial. Um, He's been given the only chance he could possibly be given. And it was a real chance. And what happens? What happens at his trial? He says, I repent. I will amend. I will, I will, I will amend, make amendment for my evil deeds. Which is just what they wanted. Just what they hoped. And he said it. Maybe it will, at the very least... They have to give him a chance to do it. If they deprive him of the chance actually to repent and amend, how, they can't do that. How could they? Right? And of course, he knows that that's what they want and want him to say because Manway's mind is open to him. Right? Um, do we ever see a Maya repent? Um, Aule, we see a Vala repent. Ale repents. He repents of making the dwarves. I think that's a real repentance there. Um, 
I think that was, uh, I think that was real repentance. It's the best example I could think of. Um, I'll say, yeah, good. Oh, so you're right. I'll say repents too. He, he goes even further than Ally. Um, well, one could argue that, I suppose. But I, anyway, yes, I agree. I'll say as well. Good, good. That's another good example. Yep. Um, okay. For the healing of Arda, indeed. Right? I, yeah, I mean, of course, it would be everybody's benefit, right? I mean, if he did repent and amend, like, for the, for the healing of Arda, indeed, but for his own healing also. Notice. Notice what he does there. Um, means and ends, right? Um, if imprisoning Melkor and trying to, uh, to get him to repent is just a means to an end, right? If what you want is the healing of Arda and you're willing to do what you have to do to Melkor in order to make that happen, you, I, I, the means and ends have to both alike be... Manway imprisoned Melkor not because he thought it the most efficient way, the only possible efficient way uh, to get him to repent and amend and therefore maybe we can fix this Arda Mard problem. No, that wasn't his motivation. His end was for Melkor's sake, for Melkor's healing, and also the healing of Arda. Um, <clears throat> but there's no means and ends uh, problem there either. Melkor had the right to exist and the right to act and use his powers. Manwe had the authority to rule and to order the world as far as he could for the well-being of the Eruhini, but if Melkor would repent and return to the allegiance of Eru, he must be given his freedom again. He had the right to exist. He can't. It's not possible. He could not be enslaved or denied his part. The office of the Elder King was to retain all his subjects in the allegiance of Eru or to bring them back to it and in that allegiance to leave them free. That's Manway's job description. Um, to help everybody freely maintain their allegiance to Eru and act freely within that allegiance. That's his job description. Therefore, not until the last... So, what about Melkor's ultimate end? His ultimate banishment? His, the ultimate containment or even death of Melkor? Um, not until the last, and not then, except by the express command of Eru and by his power, was Melkor thrown down, thrown utterly down, and deprived forever of all power to do or to undo. Why do you think he didn't do it right away? Why did the Valar wait for so long? Why, I mean, the darkening of the trees might be called a hint as to Melkor's actual intentions, right? Um, you know, one could say, maybe at that point you safely conclude that his whole I repent thing didn't, uh, wasn't actually true, right? Um... So why didn't they retake him? Why didn't they do it right away? Well, there are many potential factors, but they he couldn't. He wouldn't do that, except by the express command of Eru and by his power. Eru's power. Yeah. Um, 
amazing stuff. And then this wonderful passage. Who can then say with assurance that if Melkor had been held in bond, less evil would have followed? Love this. It's easy to scoff at the passage and be like, yeah, again, you know, yeah, man, way you rube. Um, he made a mistake you can see coming 10 miles off, right? Was it a mistake? Did more evil come by Manway's choice? Did Manway, in fact, choose the worst of the two courses? Are you sure? Can you know that? Do you know that? Do you even judge that? Right? Eh, maybe you're actually... I, I doubt you're even surmising. You're kind of guessing here. Uh, if perhaps you're not even just feigning, indeed. Do you even really want to know the truth? Right? Even in his diminishment, the power of Melkor is beyond our calculation. Yet some ruinous outburst of his despair is not the worst of what might have, not the worst that might have befallen. Right? So notice he's saying like, okay, look, if you, Melkor is incredibly powerful. Like we can't even, you can't, you can't even believe how powerful Melkor actually was. Right? So what would have happened? What would have happened if Manway had said no? If Melkor had done his, oh, I totally repent speech, right? And Manway had responded by saying, yeah, whatever. Forget about it, right? I don't believe you. We're going to keep you imprisoned forever for the good of the rest of the world. Right? If he had done the shrewd thing, the wise thing, right? What would have happened? One possibility is that Melkor um, might have had an outburst of despair in that moment, right? He might have lashed out against Arda with everything he had, knowing, like, all right, well, then I'm going to shoot my last bolt right now, right? If I can't have Arda, none of you can have Arda, right? I'm going to obliterate the whole thing right here and now rather than go back to prison. It, was he, might he have done that? Uh, yeah, I can believe it, right? Could he have done that? Yeah, he could have done that, possibly, even in his diminishment, the power of Melkor is beyond our calculation. Um, but that's not the worst case scenario. That would not have been the worst case scenario. The release was according to the promise of Manway. It was a good thing. It was Manway keeping his promise. If Manway had broken this promise for his own purposes, even though still intending good, he would have taken a step upon the paths of Melkor. That is a perilous step. In that hour and act, he would have ceased to be the vicegerent of the one, becoming but a king who takes advantage over a rival whom he has conquered by force. Would we then have the sorrows that indeed befell, or would we have the elder king lose his honor, and so pass maybe to a world rent between two proud lords striving for the throne? Of this we may be sure, we children of small strength, any one of the Valar might have taken the paths of Melkor and become like him, one was enough. Unbelievable. Um, what a powerful passage. Okay. All right. I'm going to take a gamble here. Um, it's 12.01 by my clock, and my stream is tended to be cutting off um, by uh, like 12.06. So I'm going, I'm going to, I'm going to say, um, so thanks everybody for joining me, and I'll see you next week. Now I'm going to continue. Uh, we'll see if we can get an answer to those two questions. So let me talk about the two examples uh, that Christopher and Alyssa were bringing up um, 
about uh, it's a forecast, not a foretelling uh, there, Carrie. Absolutely. Um, okay, so um, the two passages <clears throat> that Christopher... So, Christopher, I'll come to yours first, because we actually already almost talked about it, didn't we? Um, and the question was, when Galadriel says that she knows the mind of Sauron, but she has turned him back. Remember that passage? Um, when she is being like Melian was to Morgoth, and also like Varda before her was to Morgoth as well. Um, I... I I don't think she knows it. I don't think she does not know Sauron's mind. I think she's judging, not knowing. Um I think it's pretty clear that his mind is not open to her. I think that what she is saying is she might say I can read him like a book, but she's not actually reading him, right? Um she knows him. She thinks she knows him pretty well. And she knows what he means. She knows what he wants, but again, she doesn't know. She judges. I'm pretty sure she's judging, not knowing. Um, and um, yeah, yeah. So um, I think there's a place where, like, lore masters should be careful because sometimes in the way that elves and humans speak, uh, they might use, uh, or the translation, it might be a, a poor translation there, perhaps. Um, but. Um, uh, yeah, exactly. I think I agree, Brian. She's using I know his mind, as we might say that. She knows what he's like, right? Um, so, yeah, she is drawing a conclusion based, she's reasoning based on evidence, right? Now, this is important still. It's not nothing that she's saying, right? And it's important because the converse is not true, right? Um, the entire success of Gandalf's, Gandalf and Elrond's ring strategy, right, is premised upon the fact that Sauron is going to judge incorrectly about what the good guys are going to do. He's going to judge that they're going to obviously keep the ring for themselves and try to use it against him, right? And based upon that judgment, based upon that conclusion that he has drawn from those premises, no one's reading anybody because everybody's got unwilled towards each other when it comes to this stuff, right? Um, but his ju her judgment of him is better than his judgment of her, Galadriel and Sauron's, right? But I don't think there's knowledge. I don't think there's reading. Um... Uh, the other question, Alyssa's question, was about Faramir and Gollum. Um, you may remember that moment when Faramir is interrogating Gollum after the Forbidden Pool, and um, uh, oh, I'm trying to remember, Alyssa, exactly the sentence, the question that Faramir asks. I don't want to get it wrong. Um, it's when he asks him the name of the pass, right? Um, do you know the name of this pass? And Gollum says no. And then he, he screams and says, yes, yes, yes. Um, wasn't the name that that was about? I think it was. Um, and then, yes, exactly, after his... So he seems to have... So the question... Alyssa was bringing this up because she and I have talked about this passage before. And the question she asked, and she thinks it was way, way back during the Mythgard Academy discussion of the Two Towers that we did back in fall of 2013, if I'm remembering correctly, age when we were all much younger. Um, um, 
Yes, there it is. Thank you, Alyssa. I, I knew you'd quote it for me. It is called Kirith Ungol. Gollum hissed sharply and began muttering to himself. Is not that its name, uh, said Faramir, um, turning to him. No, said Gollum. And then he squealed as if something had stabbed him. Yes, yes, we heard the name once. Thank you. Okay, good. Right. That, I was right. Okay. Um, and uh, anyway, so way back then, Alyssa had been asking me about this passage, and her question at the time was, what just happened there? Like, why does he squeal? Did Faramir do something to Gollum? Or was this Gollum himself? Is this like part of his internal struggle that we're seeing there? Um, like the no and yes, are, is this a slinker stinker situation? Or is this Faramir doing something to him? And at the time, I said, I think Faramir did something to him. I stand by that. I still think Faramir um, did something to him. Um, but I think clearly what he did not do is force his unwill, right? Uh, or uh, uh, overcome his unwill. Um, and Edith, as you point out, afterwards, Faramir says there are closed rooms in his mind, right? He does say that he reads in him that he has done murder. By reads in him, I take Faramir to... I get Faramir's judging there. It is Faramir's judgment based on the evidence that he has collected. Um you know, basic, uh, and I think it's primarily um, speech, body language, other kinds of tells. Like he, he can, he he can re- in 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 his uh, in his uh, words, actions, gestures. Um, he judges that that uh, that Gollum has done murder. Um, but he. Um, But I don't think he's, I know, I mean, it's, according to this, it's impossible for him to force into Gollum's mind. Again, but I think even his, I think that what we're reading here fits with the Faramir passage. He says there's closed rooms in his mind, like he can't, his mind, Gollum's mind is not open, right? Gollum's unwill is set against Faramir. So why does he squeal? Why does he squeal and change his answer from no to yes? I do think that there was some pressure that Faramir was bringing against him. He feels it. Gollum feels it, right? Um, and in its way, uncomfortably, Alyssa, I mean, I, I, this is an uncomfortable thing I'm going to go on and say. It is uncomfortably like the kind of pressure that Melkor was described as applying, right? Does Gollum, does his fea is it experiencing fear and solicitude towards his Hroa? Uh, yeah. Yeah, Gollum's pretty fond of his Hroa, right? Um, and uh, so is there something in his look, even in his... I mean, is there is there something sort of psychical going on here, right? Is there some intangible way in which Faramir is conveying to Gollum, tell me the truth or else I'm going to kill you? Yes, I think he is. I think the threat of judgment is very real. Um, Lest I reverse my judgment, he says, even later on after he's decreed a judgment, right? Um, I think the threat of death against Gollum is very real and that he would not be wicked, uh, Faramir would not be wicked to do it. Um, He has the authority to slay Gollum, sitting in judgment as he is under these circumstances. And I think one of the reasons he says to Frodo 
about the murder is not just to put him on his guard, like, watch out for this guy, right? But in a, I mean, it, he's also kind of being like, I could totally have convicted that dude, right? Um, uh, his judgment is that Gollum is guilty as the day is long, right? Um, and if he were just on trial for his life, I'd, I'd, I'd have him killed. Um, but, um, but that doesn't mean that he is reading his mind or forcing his will. Again, I think that he at the very least, has managed to communicate this to Gollum. Um, and I don't think it has to be by telepathy. I think it could very well be by body language. <laughs> you know, um, there could be that in his aspect. And remember, there are lots of ways in which we see people perceiving the intangible. Think about, like, the sparks from Gandalf's eyes. Think about the the, the like... The glances of uh, Denethor and Gandalf fencing with each other that Pippin sees, right? Like, um, there are ways in which the uh, Faramir, I believe, may, is making his will and intention clear to Gollum, and that Gollum knows by lying just there. If he's gonna, if he's gonna do this, if he's gonna, if he's gonna lie, then um, Faramir is going to have no choice but to condemn him to death. He is on trial here. Gollum is right. Um, and so that's how I read that, um, or that's how I would read that in the light of these passages, I guess I would say. Um, so I think it does still work, um, Alyssa, but I do agree with you that it definitely informs my read. I would have said, and I probably did say nine years ago, uh, when we, uh, uh, when we were talking about this before, I guess we go back to YouTube and see what I said nine years ago, can't we? Um, I probably did say something about him there like him exerting some kind of psychic force upon Gollum that that does seem to be something potentially in his power I would still say I believe it to be in Faramir's power um, I think that he is immortal who could probably manage it um, uh, but he clearly can't do that he clearly again in light of these new passages he clearly can't force Gollum's unwill and I don't think that that's what's happening here um Okay, one last question, and then and then we'll go. Promise. Um, Cecilia was just asking um, about the mirror of Galadriel. Um, kind of combining, right, Cecilia? Our questions about uh, okay, and what was go? Oh, you you're you're doing a twofer here. Um, what was Galadriel doing when looking into the eyes of each of the Fellowship? Um, She wasn't reading their minds by force, but she like she wasn't forcing their unwill. But I think that she was trying to read. She wanted to read their minds and hearts and intentions. One of the trials there was: is your are you open to me? In, again, in retrospect, reading that passage through the lens of this essay, I would say the very first thing she tries to establish on day one of meeting the Fellowship is, so, any of you holding out? Can I read? Is it all right? Can I read your mind or is your unwill set against me? And 
if so, why? Or if not, why not? Right. Um, and uh, yeah. Now, interestingly, I think that Sam, we see in Sam's response a, a trigger of, I would read it as a trigger of unwill. Sam's feeling that he hadn't got nothing on and that he didn't like it. That sounds to me like Sam's unwill went up. But clearly, Sam's unwill going up would have seemed to go out, you know, what would have been her experience during that testing. Um, Some of them might have left their wills completely open. Some of them might have shut them immediately. Some of them might have shut them after a time. What would she have read prior to their shutting their minds? Um, What is it uh, that she would have read that um, would have triggered them shutting their minds? And what conclusions could she draw from that information? Like Those things all combined seems to me what she's doing there. Um, and, uh, um, and as for the mirror about forecasting and fores- foresight and telling, right? Um, I don't know. I have to think about that more. It can give glimpses of the future, but they're not clear glimpses. Um, is the mirror of Galadriel... It, it cannot be no, we know explicitly that it is not... She says this is the magic of Galadriel, if you like, right? She doesn't... Not comfortable with that word. Does that mean it's by her power? No. She can't, she can't predict the future. She doesn't know the future, right? Um, um, all lore must have a source, right? And she has no source of the future other than what... She, but So she's not using the mirror to... Uh, transmit to Frodo her own knowledge of the future. That's clearly, explicitly not what's happening, right? So what is the mirror? Is it, is it a supplication, right? Is it like this external way by which she lays herself and facilitates her guests to be open to whatsoever visions, howsoever unclear, of the present and or future, which Eru might choose to vouchsafe them? Uh, I don't know. And how does that work? I don't know. Um, But, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Mm. It comes back into Christopher Bartlett's mind that she breathes upon the water at the beginning um, which could be a token of opening to Eru. It's certainly very Genesis 1 of her, isn't it? Um, the Ruach, the breath, slash wind, slash spirit upon the water, right? Very Genesis. Very Genesis 1, 2. Anyway, um, yeah. So, Cecilia, that's not a very good answer to your mirror question, but I don't know. I don't know. Um, But it's a fascinating question. I can't wait to think about that more. Um, Okay. Hey, look. I didn't get cut off by by my ISP tonight. Fantastic. Um, So I'm going to go while I'm still ahead. Um, So I'm going to say for the second time, and this time I really mean it, 
Uh, thanks, everybody, for joining me, and I will see you guys next week. We'll get to Fate and Free Will next time, I promise. We'll do Fate and Free Will next time. Here's what you should do. Read through the end of Part 2. We're never going to get to the end of Part 2 next time. Um, but I'm not without hope that we might get through the end of Part 2 in maybe two more sessions. So just go ahead and read through the end. It's not that far. Go ahead and read through the end of Part 2, and we'll do that over the next couple sessions. So thanks, everybody. Have a good night, and I will see you guys next week. Bye now.